Chapter 3, The Mysterious Reason During this time the farewell ceremony was taking place. I have already said that this magnificent function was being given on the occasion of the retirement of Monsieur Dubien and Monsieur Poligny, who were determined to go out in a blaze of glory, as they say. They were helped in this optimistic, though melancholy, project by everyone that counted in the social and artistic world of Paris. All these people met, after the performance, in the foyer of the ballet, where Sorelli waited for the arrival of the retiring managers, with a glass of champagne in her hand and a little prepared speech at the tip of her tongue. Behind her, the members of the corps de ballet, young and old, discussed the events of the day in whispers or exchanged discreet signals with their friends, a noisy crowd of whom surrounded the supper tables arranged along the slanting floor. A few of the dancers had already changed into ordinary dress, but most of them wore their skirts of gossamer gauze, and all had thought it the right thing to put on a special face for the occasion, all that is except little Jean, whose fifteen summers, happy age, seemed already to have forgotten the phantom in the death of Joseph Bouquet. She never ceased to laugh and to chatter, to hop about and play practical jokes, until Messieurs Debienne and Poligny appeared on the steps of the foyer when she was severely called to order by the impatient Sorelli. Everybody remarked that the retiring managers looked cheerful, as is the Paris way. None will ever be a true Parisian who has not learned to wear a mask of gaiety over his sorrows and one of sadness, boredom, or indifference over his inward joy. You know that one of your friends is in trouble. Do not try to console him. He will tell you that he is already comforted. But should he have met with good fortune, be careful how you congratulate him. He thinks it so natural that he is surprised that you should speak of it. In Paris, our lives are one masked ball, and the foyer of the ballet is the last place in which two men so knowing as Monsieur de Bienne and Monsieur Poligny would have made the mistake of betraying their grief, however genuine it might be and they were already smiling rather too broadly upon Sorelli, who had begun to recite her speech, when an exclamation from their little madcap of a jam broke the smile of the manager so brutally that the expression of distress and dismay that lay beneath it became apparent to all eyes. The Phantom of the Opera! Jam yelled those words in a tone of unspeakable terror, and her finger pointed among the crowd of dandies, to a face so pallid, so lugubrious and so ugly, with two such deep black cavities under the straddling eyebrows that the death's head in question immediately scored a huge success. The phantom of the opera! The phantom of the opera! Everybody laughed and pushed his neighbor and wanted to offer the phantom a drink. But he was gone. He had slipped through the crowd, and the others vainly hunted for him, while two old gentlemen tried to calm little Jean, and while little Jerry stood screaming like a peacock. Sorelli was furious. She had not been able to finish her speech. The managers had kissed her, thanked her, and run away as fast as the phantom himself. No one was surprised at this, for it was known that they were to go through the same ceremony on the floor above, 
in the foyer of the singers, and that finally they were themselves to receive their personal friends for the last time in the great lobby outside the manager's office, where a regular supper would be served. Here they found the new managers, Monsieur Armand Montcharmin and Monsieur Fermin Richard, whom they hardly knew. Nevertheless, they were lavish in protestations of friendship and received a thousand flattering compliments in reply, so that those of the guests who had feared that they had a rather tedious evening in store for them at once put on brighter faces. The supper was almost gay, and a particularly clever speech of the representative of the government, mingling the glories of the past with the successes of the future, caused the greatest cordiality to prevail. The retiring managers had already handed over to their successors the two tiny master keys which opened all the doors, thousands of doors, of the opera house. And those little keys, the object of general curiosity, were being passed from hand to hand when the attention of some of the guests was diverted by their discovery at the end of the table of that strange, wan and fantastic face with the hollow eyes which had already appeared in the foyer of the ballet and been greeted by little Jean's exclamation, The Phantom of the Opera! There sat the phantom, as natural as could be, except that he neither ate nor drank. Those who began looking at him with a smile ended by turning away their heads, for the sight of him at once provoked the most funereal thoughts. No one repeated the joke of the foyer, no one exclaimed, There's the phantom of the opera. He himself did not speak a word, and his very neighbors could not have stated at what precise moment he had sat down between them. But everyone felt that if the dead did ever come and sit at the table of the living, they could not cut a more ghastly figure. The friends of Firmin Richard and Armand Montcharmin thought that this lean and skinny guest was an acquaintance of Debienne's or Poligny's, while Debienne's and Poligny's friends believed that the cadaverous individual belonged to Fermin Richard and Armand Montcharmin's party. The result was that no request was made for an explanation, no unpleasant remark, no joke in bad taste which might have offended this visitor from the tomb. A few of those present who knew the story of the phantom and the description of him given by the chief scene-shifter, they did not know of Joseph Bouquet's death, thought in their own minds that the man at the end of the table might easily have passed for him, and yet, according to the story, the phantom had no nose, and the person in question had. But Monsieur Montcharmin declares in his memoirs that the guest's nose was transparent, long, thin, and transparent, are his exact words. I, for my part, will add that this might very well apply to a false nose. Monsieur Montcharmin may have taken for transparency what was only shininess. Everybody knows that orthopedic science provides beautiful false noses. For those who have lost their noses naturally or as the result of an operation, did the phantom really take a seat at the manager's supper-table that night, uninvited? And can we be sure that the figure was that of the Phantom of the Opera himself? Who would venture to assert as much? 
I mention the incident, but not because I wish for a second to make the reader believe, or even try to make him believe, that the phantom was capable of such a sublime piece of impudence, but because, after all, the thing is impossible. Monsieur Armand Mocharmin, in chapter 11 of his memoirs, says, When I think of this first evening, I cannot separate the secret confided to us by Messieurs Debienne and Poligny in their office from the presence at our supper of that ghostly figure whom none of us knew. What happened was this. Messieurs Debienne and Poligny, sitting at the centre of the table, had not seen the man with the death's head. Suddenly he began to speak. "'The ballet girls are right,' he said. "'The death of that poor bouquet is perhaps not so natural as people think.' Dubienne and Poligny gave a start. "'Is bouquet dead?' they cried. "'Yes,' replied the man, or the shadow of a man, quietly. "'He was found this evening hanging in the third cellar "'between a farmhouse and a scene from the Roi de Lahore.' The two managers, or rather ex-managers, at once rose and stared strangely at the speaker. They were more excited than they need have been, that is to say, more excited than anyone need be by the announcement of the suicide of a chief scene-shifter. They looked at each other. They had both turned whiter than the tablecloth. At last, Debien made a sign to Messieurs Richard and Montcharmin. Poligny muttered a few words of excuse to the guests, and all four went into the manager's office. I leave Monsieur Montchartemain to complete the story. In his memoirs, he says, Monsieur de Bienne and Poligny seemed to grow more and more excited, and they appeared to have something very difficult to tell us. First, they asked us if we knew the man sitting at the end of the table who had told them of the death of Joseph Bouquet, and when we answered in the negative, they looked still more concerned. They took the master keys from our hands, stared at them for a moment, and advised us to have new locks made with the greatest secrecy for the rooms, closets, and cabinets that we might wish to have safely closed. They said this so oddly that we began to laugh and to ask if there were thieves at the opera. They replied that there was something worse, which was the phantom. We began to laugh again, feeling sure that they were indulging in some joke that was intended to crown our little entertainment. Then, at their request, we became serious, resolving to humor them and to enter into the spirit of the game. They told us that they never would have spoken to us of the phantom if they had not received formal orders from the phantom himself to ask us to be pleasant to him and to grant any requests that he might make. However, in their relief at leaving a domain where that tyrannical shade held sway, they had hesitated until the last moment to tell us this curious story, which our skeptical minds were certainly not prepared to entertain. But the announcement of the death of Joseph Bouquet had served them as a brutal reminder that whenever they had disregarded the phantom's wishes, some fantastic or disastrous event had brought them to a sense of their dependence. 
during these unexpected utterances, made in a tone of the most secret and important confidence, I looked at Richard. Richard, in his student days, had acquired a great reputation for practical joking, and he seemed to relish the dish which was being served up to him in his turn. He did not miss a morsel of it, though the seasoning was a little gruesome because of the death of Bouquet. He nodded his head sadly while the other spoke, and his features assumed the air of a man who bitterly regretted having taken over the opera, now that he knew that there was a phantom mixed up in the business. I could think of nothing better than to give him a servile imitation of this attitude of despair. However, in spite of all our efforts, we could not at the finish help bursting out laughing in the faces of Messer Dubien and Poligny, who, seeing us pass straight from the gloomiest state of mind to one of the most insolent merriment, acted as though they thought that we had gone mad. The joke became a little tedious, and Richard asked half seriously and half in jest, but after all, what does this phantom of yours want? Monsieur Poligny went to his desk and returned with a copy of the Book of House Rules. The Book of House Rules begins with the well-known words saying that the management of the opera shall give to the performance of the National Academy of Music the splendor that becomes the first lyric stage in France, and ends with Clause 98, which says that the privilege can be withdrawn if the manager infringes the conditions stipulated in the Book of House Rules. This is followed by the conditions which are four in number. The copy produced by M. Poligny was written in black ink and exactly similar to that in our possession, except that at the end it contained a paragraph in red ink and in a queer labored handwriting, as though it had been produced by dipping matchsticks into the ink. The writing of a child that has never got beyond the downstrokes and has not learned to join its letters. This paragraph ran word for word as follows. 5. Or if the manager, in any month, delay for more than a fortnight the payment of the allowance which he shall make to the Phantom of the Opera, an allowance of 20,000 francs a month, say 240,000 francs a year. Monsieur Poligny pointed with a hesitating finger to this last clause, which we certainly did not expect. Is this all? Does he not want anything else? asked Richard with the greatest coolness. Yes, he does, replied Poligny. And he turned over the pages of the Book of House Rules until he came to the clause specifying the days on which certain private boxes were to be reserved for the free use of the President of the Republic, the ministers, and so on. At the end of this clause, a line had been added, also in red ink. Box 5 on the grand tier shall be placed at the disposal of the Phantom of the Opera for every performance. When we saw this, there was nothing else for us to do but to rise from our chairs, shake our two predecessors warmly by the hand, and congratulate them on thinking of this charming little joke which proved that the old French sense of humor was never likely to become extinct. Richard added that he now understood why Messieurs de Bienne and Poligny 
were retiring from the management of the National Academy of Music. Business was impossible with so unreasonable a phantom. Certainly two hundred and forty thousand francs are not to be picked up for the asking, said Monsieur Poligny without moving a muscle in his face. And have you considered what the loss over Box 5 meant to us? We did not sell it once. And not only that, but we had to return the subscription. Why, it's awful. We really can't work to keep phantoms. We prefer to go away. Yes, echoed Monsieur de Vienne. We prefer to go away. Let us go. And he stood up. Richard said, But after all, it seems to me that you were much too kind to the phantom. If I had such a troublesome phantom as that, I should not hesitate to have him arrested. But how? Where? they cried in chorus. We have never seen him. But when he comes to his box. We have never seen him in his box. Then sell it. Sell the phantom's box. Well, gentlemen, try it. Thereupon we all four left the office. Richard and I had never laughed so much in our lives. Chapter 4 Box Number 5 Armand Montcherlin wrote such voluminous memoirs during the fairly long period of his co-management that we may well ask if he ever found time to attend to the affairs of the opera, otherwise than by telling what went on there. Monsieur Montcharmin did not know a note of music, but he called the Minister of Education and Fine Arts by his Christian name, had dabbled a little in society journalism, and enjoyed a considerable private income. Lastly, he was a charming fellow, and showed that he was not lacking in intelligence, for as soon as he made up his mind to be a sleeping partner in the opera, he selected the best possible active manager and went straight to Fermin Richard. Fermin Richard was a very distinguished composer who had published a number of successful pieces of all kinds and who liked nearly every form of music and every sort of musician. Clearly, therefore, it was the duty of every sort of musician to like Monsieur Fermin Richard. The only things to be said against him were that he was rather masterful in his ways and endowed with a very hasty temper. The first few days which the partners spent at the opera were given over to the delight of finding themselves the head of so magnificent an enterprise, and they had forgotten all about that curious, fantastic story of the phantom, when an incident occurred that proved to them that the joke, if joke it were, was not over. Monsieur Fernand Richard reached his office that morning at eleven o'clock. His secretary, Monsieur Rémy, showed him half a dozen letters, which he had not opened because they were marked private. One of the letters had at once attracted Richard's attention, not only because the envelope was addressed in red ink, but because he seemed to have seen the writing before. He soon remembered that it was the red handwriting in which the Book of House Rules had been so curiously completed. He recognized the clumsy, childish hand. He opened the letter and read, Dear Mr. Manager, I am sorry to have to trouble you at a time when you must be so very busy renewing important engagements, 
signing fresh ones, and generally displaying your excellent taste. I know what you have done for Carlotta, Sorelli, and little Jean, and for a few others whose admirable qualities of talent or genius you have suspected. Of course, when I use these words, I do not mean to apply them to La Carlotta, who sings like a toad, and who ought never to have been allowed to leave Les Ambassadeurs and the Café Jacquin, nor to La Sorelli, who owes her success mainly to the coach-builders, nor to Little Jam, who dances like a calf in a field. And I am not speaking of Christine Daillet either, though her genius is certain, whom you have taken great care to prevent from creating any important part. When all is said, you are free to conduct your little business as you think best, are you not? All the same, I should like to take advantage of the fact that you have not yet turned Christine Daillet out of doors by hearing her this evening in the part of Cybele, as that of Marguerite has been forbidden her since her triumph of the other evening. And I will ask you not to dispose of my box today, nor on the following days, for I cannot end this letter without telling you how disagreeably surprised I have been once or twice to hear on arriving at the opera, that my box had been sold at the box office by your orders. I did not protest, first, because I dislike scandal, and second, because I thought that your predecessors, Messieurs de Bienne and Poligny, who were always charming to me, had neglected before leaving to mention my little quirks to you. I have now received a reply from those gentlemen to my letter asking for an explanation, and this reply proves that you know all about my book of house rules, and consequently that you are treating me with outrageous contempt. If you wish to live in peace, you must not begin by taking away my private box. Believe me to be, dear Mr. Manager, Despite these little observations, your most humble and obedient servant, the Phantom of the Opera. The letter was accompanied by a cutting from the personals column of the Revue Théâtrale, which ran, Phantom of the Opera. There is no excuse for R and M. We told them and left your book of house rules in their hands. Kind regards. Monsieur Fermat Richard had hardly finished reading this letter when Monsieur Armand Moncharmin entered, carrying one exactly similar. They looked at each other and burst out laughing. They are keeping up the joke, said Monsieur Richard, but I don't call it funny. What does it all mean? asked Monsieur Moncharmin. Do they imagine that, because they have been managers of the opera, we are going to let them have a box for an indefinite period? "'I am not in the mood to let myself be laughed at long,' said Fumain Richard. "'It's harmless enough,' observed Armand Moncharmin. "'What is it they really want, a box for tonight?' Monsieur Fermin Richard told his secretary to send box five on the grand tier to Messieurs Debienne et Poligny if it was not sold. It was not. It was sent off to them. Debienne lived at the corner of the Rue Scribe, and the Boulevard des Capucines, Poligny in the Rue Aubert, the Phantom's two letters had been posted 
at the Boulevard des Capucines post office, as Montcharmin remarked after examining the envelopes. You see, said Richard. They shrugged their shoulders and regretted that two men of that age should amuse themselves with such childish tricks. They might have been civil for all that, said Montcharmin. Did you notice how they treat us with regard to Carlotta, Sorelli, and little Jean? Why, my dear fellow, those two are mad with jealousy. To think that they went to the expense of an advertisement in the Revue Théâtrale. Have they nothing better to do? By the way, said Moncharmin, they seem to be greatly interested in that little Christine Daillet. You know as well as I do that she has the reputation of being quite good, said Richard. Reputations are easily obtained, replied Moncharmin. Haven't I the reputation for knowing all about music, and I don't know one key from another? Don't be afraid. You never had that reputation, Richard declared. Thereupon, he ordered the artist to be shown in, who, for the last two hours, had been walking up and down outside the door behind which fame and fortune or dismissal awaited them. The whole day was spent in discussing, negotiating, signing, or cancelling contracts, and the two overworked managers went to bed early without so much as casting a glance at Box 5 to see whether Monsieur de Bienne and Monsieur Poligny were enjoying the performance. Next morning, the managers received a card of thanks from the Phantom. Dear Mr. Manager, Thanks. Charming evening. Daye exquisite. Choruses want waking up. Carlotta a splendid commonplace instrument. We'll write you soon for the 240,000 francs or 233,424 francs, 70 centimes, to be correct. Monsieur de Bienne and Poligny have sent me the 6,575 francs, 30 centimes, representing the first ten days of my allowance for the current year. Their privileges finished on the evening of the 10th inst. Kind regards, the Phantom of the Opera. On the other hand, there was a letter from Messieurs de Bienne and Poligny. Gentlemen, we are much obliged for your kind thought of us, but you will easily understand that the prospect of again hearing Faust, pleasant though it is, to be ex-managers of the opera, cannot make us forget that we have no right to occupy Box 5 on the Grand Tier, which is the exclusive property of him of whom we spoke to you when we went through the Book of House Rules with you for the last time. See Clause 98, Final Paragraph. Accept, gentlemen, etc. Oh, those fellows are beginning to annoy me, shouted Firmin Richard, snatching up the letter. And that evening, Box 5 was sold. The next morning, Messieurs Richard and Moncharmin, on reaching their office, found a house manager's report relating to an incident that had happened the night before in Box 5. I give the essential part of the report. I was obliged to call in a municipal guard twice this evening to clear Box 5 on the Grand Tier, once at the beginning and once in the middle of the second act. The occupants, who arrived as the curtain rose on the second act, created a regular scandal by their laughter and their ridiculous observations. 
There were cries of hush all around them, and the whole house was beginning to protest when the box-keeper came to fetch me. I entered the box and said what I thought necessary. The people did not seem to me to be in their right mind, and they made stupid remarks. I said that if the noise was repeated, I should be compelled to clear the box. The moment I left, I heard the laughing again, with fresh protests from the house. I returned with a municipal guard who turned them out. They protested, still laughing, saying they would not go unless they had their money back. At last they became quiet, and I allowed them to enter the box again. The laughter at once recommenced, and this time I had them turned out definitely. "'Send for the house manager,' said Richard to his secretary, who had already read the report and marked it with blue pencil. Monsieur Rémy, the secretary, had foreseen the order and called the house manager at once. "'Tell us what happened,' said Richard bluntly. The house manager began to splutter and referred to the report. "'Well, but what were those people laughing at?' asked Moncharmin. "'They must have been drinking, sir.' and seemed more inclined to lock about than to listen to good music. The moment they entered the box, they came out again and called the box-keeper, who asked them what they wanted. They said, Look in the box. There's no one there, is there? No, said the woman. Well, said they, when we went in we heard a voice saying that the box was taken. Monsieur Montcharmin could not help smiling as he looked at Monsieur Richard, but Monsieur Richard did not smile. He himself had done too much in that way in his time not to recognize in the house manager's story all the marks of one of those practical jokes which begin by amusing and end by enraging the victims. The house manager, to curry favor with Monsieur Montcharmin, who was smiling, thought it best to give a smile, too, a most unfortunate smile. Monsieur Richard glared at his subordinate, who thenceforth made it his business to display a face of utter consternation. However, when the people arrived, roared Richard, there was no one in the box, was there? Not a soul, sir, not a soul. Nor in the box on the right, nor in the box on the left, not a soul, sir, I swear. The box-keeper told it me often enough, which proves that it was all a joke. Oh, you agree, do you, said Richard. You agree it's a joke, and you think it funny, no doubt. I think it in very bad taste, sir. And what did the box-keeper say? Oh, she just said that it was the Phantom of the Opera. That's all she said. And the house manager grinned. But he soon found that he had made a mistake in grinning, for the words had no sooner left his mouth than Monsieur Richard, from gloomy, became furious. "'Send for the box-keeper!' he shouted. "'Send for her this minute, this minute, and bring her in here to me, and turn all those people out!' The house-manager tried to protest, but Richard closed his mouth with an angry order to hold his tongue. Then, when the wretched man's lips seemed shut for ever, the manager commanded him to open them once more. "'Who is this phantom of the opera?' he snarled. But the house manager was by this time incapable of speaking a word. 
he managed to convey by a despairing gesture that he knew nothing about it, or rather that he did not wish to know. Have you ever seen him? Have you seen the phantom? The house manager, by means of a vigorous shake of the head, denied ever having seen the phantom in question. Very well, said Monsieur Richard coldly. The house manager's eyes started out of his head, as though to ask why the manager had uttered that ominous very well. Because I am going to settle the account of anyone who has not seen him, explained the manager. As he seems to be everywhere, I can't have people telling me that they see him nowhere. I like people to work for me when I employ them. Having said this, Monsieur Richard paid no attention to the house manager and discussed various matters of business with his acting manager, who had entered the room meanwhile. The house manager thought he could go and was gently, oh, so gently, sidling toward the door when Monsieur Richard nailed the man to the floor with a thundering, Stay where you are. Monsieur Rémy had sent for the box-keeper to the Rue de Provence, close to the opera, where she was a concierge. She soon made her appearance. What's your name? Madame Giry. You know me well enough, sir. I am the mother of little Giry, little Meg. This was said in so rough and solemn a tone that for a moment Monsieur Richard was impressed. He looked at Madame Giry in her faded shawl, her worn shoes, her old taffeta dress and dingy bonnet, it was quite evident from the manager's attitude that he either did not know or could not remember having met Madame Giry, nor even little Giry, nor even little Meg. But Madame Giry's pride was so great that the celebrated boxkeeper imagined that everybody knew her. Never heard of her, the manager declared, but that's no reason, Madame Giry, why I shouldn't ask you what happened last night to make you and the house manager call in a municipal guard. I was just wanting to see you, sir, and talk to you about it, so that you mightn't have the same unpleasantness as Monsieur Dubien and Monsieur Poligny. They wouldn't listen to me either at first. I'm not asking you about all that. I'm asking what happened last night. Madame Giry turned purple with indignation. Never had she been spoken to like that. She rose as though to go. "'gathering up the folds of her skirt "'and waving the feathers of her dingy bonnet with dignity. "'But changing her mind, she sat down again and said in a haughty voice, "'I'll tell you what happened.' "'The phantom was annoyed again. "'Thereupon, as Monsieur Richard was on the point of exploding, "'Monsieur Montcharmin stepped in and continued the questioning. "'It appeared that Madame Giry thought it quite natural "'that a voice should be heard to say that a box was taken.' when there was nobody in the box. She was unable to explain this phenomenon, which was not new to her except by the intervention of the phantom. Nobody could see the phantom in his box, but everybody could hear him. She had often heard him, and they could believe her, for she always spoke the truth. They could ask Monsieur de Bienne and Monsieur Poligny, and anybody who knew her, and also Monsieur Isidore Sack, who had had a leg broken by the phantom. Indeed, said Montcharmin, interrupting her. Did the phantom break poor Isidore Sack's leg? Madame Giry opened her eyes with astonishment at such ignorance. However, 
she consented to enlighten those two poor innocents. The thing had happened in Monsieur de Bienne and Monsieur Poligny's time, also in Box 5 and also during a performance of Faust. Madame Jerry coughed, cleared her throat. It sounded as though she were preparing to sing the whole of Gounod's score, and began. <clears throat> it was like this, sir. That night, Monsieur Maniera and his lady, the jewellers in the Rue Mogador, were sitting in the front of the box with their great friend, Monsieur Isidore Sac, sitting behind Madame Mariera. Mephistopheles was singing. Madame Giry here burst into song herself. Caterina, while you play at sleeping. And then Monsieur Maniera heard a voice in his right ear. His wife was on his left, saying, Ha ha, Julie's not playing at sleeping. His wife happened to be called Julie. So, Monsieur Maniera turns to the right to see who was talking to him like that. Nobody there. He rubs his ear and asks himself if he's dreaming. Then Mephistopheles went on with his serenade. Uh, but perhaps I am boring you, gentlemen. No, no, go on. You are too good, gentlemen, with a smirk. And then Mephistopheles went on with his serenade. Madame Giry burst into song again. Saint, unclose thy portals holy, and accord the bliss to a mortal bending lowly of a pardon kiss. And then Monsieur Maniera again hears the voice in his right ear saying this time, Ha, ha, Julie wouldn't mind according a kiss to Isidore. Then he turns round again, but this time to the left. And what do you think he sees? Isidore, who had taken his lady's hand and was covering it with kisses through the little round place in the glove, like this, gentlemen, rapturously kissing the bit of palm left bare in the middle of her thread gloves. Then they had a lively time between them. Bang, bang, Monsieur Maniera, who was big and strong, like you, Monsieur Richard, gave two blows to Monsieur Isidore Sac, who was small and weak, like Monsieur Montcharmin, saving his presence. There was a great uproar. People in the house shouted, That will do. Stop them. He'll kill him. Then at last Monsieur Isidore Sac managed to run away. Then the phantom had not broken his leg, asked Monsieur Montcharmin, a little vexed that his figure had made so little impression on Madame Giry. He did break it for him, sir, replied Madame Giry haughtily. He broke it for him on the grand staircase, which he ran down too fast, sir, and it will be long before the poor gentleman will be able to go up it again. Did the ghost tell you what he said in Monsieur Maniera's right ear? asked Monsieur Montcharmin, with a gravity which he thought exceedingly humorous. No, sir. It was Monsieur Maniera himself. So, uh, but you have spoken to the phantom, my good lady. As I am speaking to you now, my good sir, Madame Gerie replied. And when the phantom speaks to you, what does he say? Well, uh, he tells me to bring him a footstool. 
This time Richard burst out laughing, as did Moncharmin and Rami the secretary. Only the house manager, warned by experience, was careful not to laugh, while Madame Giry ventured to adopt an attitude that was positively threatening. "'Instead of laughing,' she cried indignantly, "'you'd do better to do as Monsieur Poligny did, who found out for himself.' "'Found out about what?' asked Moncharmin, who had never been so much amused in his life. "'About the phantom, of course. Look here.' She suddenly calmed herself, feeling that this was a solemn moment in her life. Look here, she repeated. They were playing La Juive. Monsieur Poligny thought he would watch the performance from the Phantom's box. Well, when Leopold cries, Let us fly, you know, and Eliazer uh, stops them and says, Whither go ye? Well, Monsieur Poligny, I was watching him from the back of the next box, which was empty. Monsieur Poligny got up and walked out quite stiffly, like a statue, and before I had time to ask him, Whither go ye, like Eliezer, he was down the staircase, but without breaking his leg. Still, that doesn't let us know how the phantom came to ask you for a footstool, insisted Monsieur Moncharmin. Well, from that evening no one tried to take the phantom's private box from him. The manager gave orders that he was to have it at each performance, and whenever he came, he asked me for a footstool. Tut, tut, a phantom asking for a footstool? Then this phantom of yours is a woman. No, the phantom is a man. How do you know, madame? He has a man's voice. Oh, such a lovely man's voice. This is what happens. When he comes to the opera, it's usually in the middle of the first act. He gives three little taps on the door of box five. The first time I heard those three taps, when I knew there was no one in the box, you can think how puzzled I was. I opened the door, listened, looked. Nobody. And then I heard a voice say, Madame Jules, my poor husband's name was Jules. A footstool, please. Saving your presence, gentlemen, it made me feel all overish like. But the voice went on. Don't be frightened, Madame Jules. I am the phantom of the opera. And the voice was so soft and kind that I hardly felt frightened. The voice was sitting in the corner chair on the right in the front row. Was there anyone in the box on the right of box five? asked Moncharmin. No. Box seven and box three, the one on the left, were both empty. The curtain had only just gone up. And what did you do? Well, I brought the footstool. Of course, it wasn't for himself he wanted it, but for his lady. But I never heard her nor saw her. Ah, what? So now the phantom is married? The eyes of the two managers traveled from Madame Géry to the house manager, who, standing behind the boxkeeper, was waving his arms to attract their attention. He tapped his forehead with a distressful forefinger to convey his opinion that the widow Jules Géry was most certainly mad, a piece of pantomime which confirmed Monsieur Richard in his determination to get rid of a house manager who kept a lunatic in his service. Meanwhile, the worthy lady went on about her phantom, 
now painting his generosity. At the end of the performance, he always gives me two francs, sometimes five, sometimes even ten. When he has been many days without coming, only since people begun to annoy him again, he gives me nothing at all. Excuse me, my good woman, said Moncharmin, while Madame Giry tossed the feathers in her dingy hat at this persistent familiarity. Excuse me, how does the phantom manage to give you your two francs? Why, he leaves them on the little shelf in the box, of course. I find them with the program, which I always give him. Some evenings I find flowers in the box, a rose that must have dropped from his lady's bodice, for he brings a lady with him sometimes. One day they left a fan behind them. Oh, the phantom left a fan, did he? And what did you do with it? Well, I brought it back to the box next night. Here the house manager's voice was raised. You've broken the rules. I shall have to fine you, Madame Giry. Hold your tongue, you fool, muttered Monsieur Fernand Richard. You brought back the fan, and then? Well, then they took it away with them, sir. It was not there at the end of the performance. And in its place they left me a box of English sweets, which I am very fond of. That's one of the phantom's pretty thoughts. That will do, Madame Giry. You can go. When Madame Giry had bowed herself out with the dignity that never deserted her, the manager told the house manager that they had decided to dispense with that old madwoman's services. And when he had gone in his turn, they instructed the acting manager to make up the house manager's accounts. Left alone, the managers told each other of the idea which they both had in mind, which was that they should look into that little matter of box five themselves. 